Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll probably mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show will be on talking about the difficult parts of your adopted child's history. Talking with your child, I should say, about the difficult parts of his history. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the uh, radio page of our website. You just click on the iTunes button on our page, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family, and we're the National Adoption and Infertility Education Organization. You can find us, as I just mentioned, at our website, creatingafamily.org. We are proud that the Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. Or, of course, you could talk with your oncologist, or if you're seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, you could talk with them and get more information. And now I have a quick favor to ask. If you are a fan of the Creating a Family show and you want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. We just found out that we are included in the What's Hot under Family and Kids in iTunes, which is a big darn deal. We're very proud about that. And we would like to continue to uh, uh, continue to grow in, in iTunes' eyes and ranks. Uh, and uh, it would help. Uh, ratings uh, certainly help. We have quite a few, and we would love to have more. Uh, you can give us a star rating, or you can le- and or you can leave a comment. Again, the easiest way is just go to uh, if you have iTunes, just go to iTunes on your computer, just uh, type in the words "creating a family" and uh, rate us there. Or you could click on the iTunes button on the radio page of our website. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption to help create strong families. We have Bethany Christian Services. They provide post-adoption support to all members of the Adoption Constellation through branch offices and through the National Post-Adoption Contact Center. The Post-Adoption Contact Center is staffed by licensed adoption-competent professionals, and it's available from 8 to 8 Eastern Time. Um, you can find them. It's, it's a hard email. Let me give it to you quickly. BCS, postadopt at Bethany. We also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. And we have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. They provide international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation adoption services. 
we also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption or an infertility service provider, you consider using one from the Creating a Family directories on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a whole host of other factors we think are important when choosing. By using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's Creating a Family show will be on talking with your adopted child about the difficult parts of his history. Sometimes our adopted kids come to us with a history uh, that their birth families of their birth families of drug abuse, rape, incest, abuse, or prison. Should adoptive parents share this information? And if so, how? Our guests today are Beth O'Malley. She is the author of many books about preparing life books for adopted and foster children, including Life Books, Creating a Treasure for the Adopted Child. We also have Angela Magnuson. She is a licensed professional counselor with Bethany Christian Services. She is also the lead staff for Bethany for their post-adoption contact center. She is a licensed professional counselor, and she has specialized training through the Rutgers Certificate Program in Adoption and seven years' experience working with foster, kinship, and pre- and post-adoptive families. Welcome, Angela and Beth, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Good to Thanks be so here. much. Well, I'm going to, Angela, you get the first question, and I'm going to start with the one that kind of underpins everything else, because I think a lot of adoptive parents, in fact, I know because we've had some recent discussions on, the, on our online communities about just this, should adoptive parents share this information with their adopted child? And the question that we often get is, what good does it help? Why is it, what possible good would it serve my child to know that they were conceived through rape or, or that their uh, birth father murdered their birth mother or that uh, their uh, birth mother is in prison for selling drugs? What good does this do our children? And, and should we even, why should we consider telling them? Wouldn't this just be upsetting information? Well, it's that's kind of a it's a complicated process, but you know, it comes down to yes, uh, you know, children do need their stories and they and they need all of their story. And really what it comes down to is their identity. And it's, you know, it's easy for some of us who have, you know, this this wonderful birth story, you know, I was, you know, I was born in this state and, and, you know, it was, you know, four o'clock in the morning and, you know, and some of us have had our parents tell us the story over and over again. Um, it becomes a part of who we are. Uh, and we know for adopted children, they already have so many missing pieces. So whatever pieces we can help them have, whether those are pretty or not so pretty, they, they belong to them. Um, so it is important for them to have those pieces. But I think a lot of adoptive parents say, but this is not a piece that I particularly want them to own. So, I mean, that's why do I want them to have this piece of their history? There are other pieces that I can provide. Why is it important that they hear the, as you said, the ugly or the pretty and the not so pretty? Because uh, we really can't, uh, you know, just like we tell, you know, people all the time, you, you know, you can pick your friends, but not your family, um, you know, in that kind of situation. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't get to choose their their information, unfortunately, you know, they, they came to us with with pieces that we didn't we didn't choose. Um, it's it's not for us adults in their outside world to make those particular decisions for them. 
like you know, like I said, that you know those pieces were born to them, therefore they belong to them, just like their nose and their ears and their toes, uh, you know, and everything else about them that's still their piece. Um, and it can be really traumatic and really problematic for the relationship in the future. You know, if your child finds out that information and knows that you had it all this time um, and didn't provide it. So that's when you start yeah. getting into this, you know, the scary scenario of, um, you know, why didn't you tell me this and, and the rejection piece. Mm-hmm. I think that's when I'm talking with families and, and um, you know, and, and they are objecting, I I think that's the, the piece that really clicks with a lot of them. The reality now more than ever is that the odds are your child is going to find out. So the, really the issue is do you want to shape the telling or do you want them to hear outside of, of you? And, and as a parent, do you feel, don't you want to be the one who shares the difficult as well as the good with your kid? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and I think that, you know, I would tell parents often too, whatever pieces are missing if we if we have that information um you know and we don't provide it sometimes they fill in the blanks with things we don't want them to um yeah. you know and then you get into that you know they could be fantasizing that you know that birth mom is an an astronaut um or you know obviously the you know the worst case scenario is they start internalizing those thoughts and feelings um and just start thinking things about themselves that may not be true well, and also the, the thinking of you lied to me, you know, that you knew this information. And when I ask you questions and, and you as a parent can try to say in your head, well, it really wasn't a lie. It was just an omission. But the reality is, number one, most kids view omissions, most, not kids, most people view omissions as lies. But just as important, oftentimes there are little lies that go along with it because you have to cover something up if you know some information and you're not saying it. There are little pieces and little lies, and ultimately it's the lies that then what you don't want is your kid coming back to you saying, well, you lied to me. And and I, I think that probably is, is often the case for families who, who try to omit telling uh, information. Absolutely. Well, Beth, um, I'm going to ask you an easier question here. <laughs> the... One method that families can use, and uh, we're going to talk about others as well, but one method uh, for families to use to share all sorts of information, uh, as Angela says, the uh, the pretty and the not so pretty. Um, uh, one way is through the use of life books. Um, it probably would help. I think uh, those of us who have been around adoption for a while rattle off the term a life book and have an idea of what it means. But a lot of the people listening to this show are going to be new to the idea of life books. So tell us what a life book is first, and then we'll we'll branch out into how to utilize a life book to help share difficult information. All right. So a life book is an actual physical book, and it's the child's story. It consists of when they were born. It talks about the fact that um, they had a birth mother and a birth father. It talks about the whys in terms of why were they um, why are they not living with their first family? Why were they placed for adoption? And then it gets into when the adoptive family formed. 
And that's usually the easier part and the more fun part. Um, You can have um, life books for much younger children, even toddlers, or you can, you know, if people start later on, uh, you can have a tween or a teen or even a, you know, school-aged version. Do you recommend having different life books for different ages or utilizing the same life book but just expanding as the child gets older? I think a lot depends on the parent's motivation and their situation at that point in life. Uh, you know, if if you've got five kids and they're all under the age of six or you adopted um maybe a, a baby and, and you have tons of time on your hands, then then maybe you'd want to go ahead and, and create a, a toddler life book. If the idea of a, a life book is so daunting that you don't ever see yourself doing more than one, then I would recommend going with the older school-age version. And, and let me just raise my hand. Together. I, and I'm I need sorry? to raise my hand right now and say I fell into the latter category. I was a, I mean, just the thought of scrapbooking or doing anything crafty like that, just, oh, I'm just not good at it. And honestly, the whole thought of creating a life book, I just had to just close my eyes and just make myself do it and um, uh, and tell myself that it didn't matter what it looked like. And uh, so, yeah, the idea when I hear of people doing three and four life books, you know, every couple of years as a child gets older, totally different books, I am just amazed horrified at at the thought that they would have to do it. But these people love it, but not me. So just wanted to say up front that I was, you know, I felt like I needed to confess here that that very thought of a life book made me shudder. And, yes, I actually did have your book, so I shouldn't have. (laughs) I should have been, I should have felt more optimistic about it, but I'm just not crafty that way. Uh, so the truth is you don't have to be crafty. All right, so uh, that gives us information about what a life book is. It's a physical book, and you start with uh, the uh, where they were, the information about their birth, information about their birth family, and then why they were placed for adoption. Now, and then moving into the excitement through, of the adoptive family, the receiving family. So that's is that the gist there, uh, Beth? It is. It is. Okay, so let's expand that a little uh, in the uh, information you're presenting about the uh, birth mom and the uh, birth father and the why placed for adoption. I'm going to assume that that's where you start laying the seeds of information that you want to build on. Um, So can you give us some information? Let's take some some specific situations and talk about... uh, Let's say drug abuse. Um, that's uh, it's actually one of the easier, I suppose, ones to actually talk about. But uh, how would you share that information via a life book, or would you? Okay. Um, so say say with a, a situation with with drugs. I for with the younger child, I'm going to use very general phrases. I'm going to say that um, your your birth mother had grown-up problems, that she couldn't take care of herself and she couldn't take care of any child at that time in her life. And okay. I think that by just laying the, the groundwork that that it didn't have anything to do with the, you know, with the, 
DDoPD, and it had to do with with issues and problems. Um, that that lays the foundation. Angela, anything that you would add? Um, in uh, this is for a this is you said for a toddler age, right, uh, Beth? Uh, yeah, up to uh, preschool toddler. Up to first young young elementary even. Yep. Okay. Yes, no, I um I really appreciate that uh, the phrasing that that Beth used because uh, I think in the past um even in trainings that I've been to um you know in books we've read have said you know start with you know while well, your you know your birth mother was sick um you know and that was kind of the the the, the minimizer the cover up uh you know mm-hmm. until you got to an older age and got into the details and I think you know, we've since learned, you know, um, in hearing from these families and hearing from these kids that using the word sick, um, you know, can be problematic uh, because if my birth mother needed to, you know, make an adoption plan for me or the judge, uh, you know, decided adoption was the plan for me because my birth mother was ill or sick, what happens when adoptive mom gets sick? Um, so, we, you know, we really have to be careful with our language that we're truthful um that we're not minimizing in the sense that we're placing words that a child could misinterpret on later um so i really appreciate you know birth mom had you know grown-up problems um you know this was something that you know she had to deal with and of course the great disclaimer of you know not only was she not able to take care of herself, you know, hence she couldn't take care of you. Um, so I, I really think that is a great way to start off with a, with a toddler or, you know, a, a school-age child. Okay. Um, and that can cover some of our, um, okay, that would, actually the same language, I'm sitting here mentally quickly thinking, that same language of a grown-up problems would take care of uh, of a number of the issues that that are hard to explain. What about things like abuse and neglect? Because sadly, the reality is that some children uh, are placed for adoption because their parents were abusive or neglectful. Uh, albeit sometimes drug and alcohol was involved, but sometimes whether it was or wasn't, that the reason that they're actually removed was the abuse or neglect. Uh, any thoughts on that, Beth, about, again, I, I liked especially that you gave some specific language for people. Um, any thoughts on how to or if you should, I think we've decided that, yes, you should, but how to address uh, the issues of abuse and neglect uh, and how that would affect uh, a child? Okay. Um, the, and so there's always a reason for the neglect or the abuse. And, you know, sometimes it's drugs, um, sometimes it's going to be um, domestic violence, sometimes you have anger management, mental health issues. It, it all gets broken down. And then other times uh, the the bio parent didn't, didn't have um, support when they were growing up. Um, perhaps they watched their father beat their mother and, and didn't learn about how to to manage their feelings and how to how to take care of themselves uh emotionally. So I would look to the underlying reason and start to break that down. 
That's a good thought. So the, the, at that point, and, and we're now speaking, we're going to move to older kids right now, but right now we're speak, speaking through up through middle, young, uh, up through middle school age. Uh, not no, I, I don't mean middle school. I mean up to uh, early to mid elementary type of school. Mm-hmm. So look to the uh, look to the underlying cause and, and include that information. Right now, if a child has lived lived it and gone through it, then it's a whole different story. You and just asked about- my next question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when somebody does that. So, yeah, let us talk about it. If a child, whether or not we're sure they remember, a child has lived it, uh, you know, it was removed from the age of three or four or even two, uh, uh, then how do we address that? Are you talking to me? Oh, yeah, sorry, Beth. Okay, okay. Um, so this is where it's great to to use artwork. It's great to to try to just get a sense of what kids remember. Um, oftentimes, in, uh, when when children are, are first placed, there's there's clues in terms of you know some of what they they witnessed as a child. Um, maybe some of their their play is violent or angry. Maybe. Um, you have a child that hoards food, and you can grab on to some of that and say, you know, things were, were really bad when you were living with your bio family. Um, this is some of the things that we saw when you first came because those memories are, you're going to lose some of those memories. I think that it's uh, a mistake to to not talk about it and or to think that they don't have memories. And yeah. And to, to take it, um, to move the memories from what's stored in the body into words, and to, and to give to give uh, feelings uh, words, and to help them process just what they couldn't um, speak about if they were younger. Angela, any thoughts on this for a child who has uh, experienced abuse and neglect, and and. As Beth has mentioned, so often we as parents don't really know how much they remember or or even sometimes what they were exposed to. Um, and uh, any ideas, uh, further ideas on uh, helping uh, and, uh, and, and, and addressing as well the whole idea, the counterintuitive idea, if you don't want them to lose those memories. Uh, would, first of all, would you agree with that, the idea that we don't want them to lose these memories, we want to give them more, the memories words? Absolutely, we want we want children to to have words and a voice, um, you know, to those memories. Because as children, they don't typically have words to too much of anything. They have feelings, uh, and like Beth was saying, that you know that that trauma, that abuse, that neglect, even the removal itself, those memories can can be stored in the body. So giving words to them so that they can process them as they come up for them in the future. Um, because they typically do, uh, we do want them to have words to that. Um, and, you know, pictures, art, um, art therapy, play therapy, um, you know, sand tray work and those kinds of things um, will really help assess what a child may remember um, or what their body may be storing. So maybe for a younger child, if you know, if we're aware that they came from, you know, such trauma, abuse, or neglect, uh, you know, getting that professional input, uh, I think 
would be recommended at that point. Um, and then taking it from there because, you know, as, as the parent being involved in the therapy, um, to, you know, then take that work home as well. So the child's doing some work in a safe place and then building that safe relationship with you and processing those later as well. Um, so you really kind of need both environments when you have that kind of trauma history. Angela, for parents who have adopted internationally, they face a particular challenge. Often the record is incomplete or absent. There's, it's totally absent of any uh, possibilities of, of, of abuse or neglect, and yet we know something happened to, to, that a child ended up in a child welfare institution or an orphanage and ended up in international adoption. Um, further complicating this is the issue that a child may not have in the English language. Uh, any thoughts on how parents should, uh, international adoptive parents, should um, should they anticipate? Should they go looking for problems, or should they assume that there wasn't, there weren't any? Um, we often hear this from uh, adoptive parents of, and of course, the instinct is to say, "Well, I would like to believe there wasn't any abuse and neglect either in the birth home or in the orphanage." Um, but should we go looking and, before the child loses these memories? I, you know, I really, I certainly wouldn't want to suggest, you know, let's. Let's assume nothing happened, um, you know, but just orphanage care, it just, it doesn't carry the same, um, it doesn't carry the same environmental factors that a nurturing environment has. It just, it can't, whether it was, you know, a terrible environment or, you know, a pretty good one. And there are definitely some very, you know, healthy, adaptive, um, you know, functioning orphanages um, that have worked with these children, but it's not, it's not the same. Um, as, as building an attachment to a parent. So, uh, you know, we know in some sense that that has to have an effect on a child. Uh, what that is exactly, um, you know, if you, if you can get that information, if you have access to, to getting more details, I would certainly encourage it. Um, even if it's something that you, you know, you're writing down to, you know, to share more detail later. Um, I would say get it while you possibly can while, you know, that worker may still be at that orphanage who knew your child. Um, so absolutely get as much information as you can. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, share it right then and there, uh, but absolutely get what you can. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about talking with your adopted child about the difficult parts of his history. Creating a Family has the largest adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. You can connect with us at Twitter. We're at Creating a Family, all one word. On Facebook, there are three ways to connect to us. I'm Dawn.Davenport1. You can also like our Facebook page, which is, of course, titled Creating a Family. And we also have a closed Facebook support group uh, called Creating a Family as well. You can find both the group and the page by typing in the words creating a family in the search bo- the search box uh, and uh both the page and the group will pop up uh you can like the page and join the group we also have a very active uh group on Pinterest and um that's just one of my favorite places to hang out now uh because i just uh i must be a visual person anyway we would love to have you join us on Pinterest we have i think 13 or 15 i can't even remember now how many adoption related boards uh, for anything you can possibly imagine, we we have a board for it. Uh, and uh, again, on Pinterest, we are creating a family. 
Um, we have a question from Melissa. She says, we do not want to put the info of, about incest in our son's life book because we don't want him to share it outside of the family. Um, and that's Melissa's question, but I would like to expand that even even more so is the the uh, to to generally how do we help again we're talking about younger children now uh under the age let's say of eight or nine um we want to lay the groundwork plant the seeds of sharing this difficult information so that we can build upon it but at at a very young age children often don't understand the ramifications of sharing uh difficult information outside of the family and it might have ramif- uh, repercussions in their life that we as parents want to protect them from so melissa's specific question was about the life book so i'm going to ask just melissa's question to you uh beth and then angela i'll give you time to be thinking in advance because i'd like to then um even if we don't put it in a life book you know that, that how do we uh, help our children understand what's to share and what's to not share all right, but Beth, first of all, with a life book, uh, children often are very proud of these and, and want to share them with other people. Uh, so how do you handle that um, when you're including information that as a parent you're not sure is in your kid's best interest to be shared broadly? Okay, uh, great question. And and I think that for the case of incest, for rape, uh those are words that you don't want to put into a child's life book. Uh, you, like you said, you don't know if um, somehow the life book could end up at a circle time in school somehow. Yeah, um, I have that image right now in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, somebody comes, oh, let me show you my life book. Um, there's, there can be no filter. And, uh, you know, let's face it, there's a stigma attached um, to incest, to rape. There's... There's, people have a lot of feelings about that, and that's the child's story, and it's theirs, and they're going to be working on that throughout their life. So getting back to the life book. Um, so, again, for, for the younger child, probably the, the beginning is going to be talking about the fact that everyone does have a, a birth mother and birth father, and that you do too and talking in, in more generalities. Um, in, now, in, in terms, so say with the incest piece, um, part of one of the factors you need to look at is who else in the family is aware of it, and I realize this is a, a family issue, but it could be maternal or paternal. Do they have contact with the child? Um, is this something that the cousins are going to be talking about? Is there a possibility your child could overhear this? Um, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering um, what some of the circumstances are. And, and now when you're talking about family members, you're speaking of birth family members, I believe. Um, no, adoptive families. Adoptive family members as well. Yeah, yes. and that's kind of a separate issue, and that's how much do you share uh, and, and we're going to come to that uh, at the end. Okay. Uh, how much of okay. your child's story do you share outside of your family? Um, so uh, um, if, but, but if let, it's possible, let, go ahead. But let, let's say that it's uh, maybe it's a semi-open uh, situation. Yeah. And there's contact with, you know, with some of the birth family. Um, yes. But I think, think that's a, a general question. Um, mm-hmm. And that that in terms of, you know, explaining, it, it's the same as, the same basics as far as 
you know, the, the birth origin. Um, you can talk about sometimes um, the, the situation is, is complicated, and this is something that we're going to talk about when you're a little bit older. And and you could be, you know, you can be you're truthful, but at the same time, you're you're not tackling it at a time when they're too young to understand. Now, the, go ahead. The the backstory for this, for mental health, for drugs, for incest, for rape, for all of that, is that you know, outside of the life book, one of your your parenting tasks is to educate your child age appropriately, but in a gradual fashion about, uh, let's say, rape, about um, what constitutes rape. You know, first you do the birds and the bees, and then you're you're talking, you know, as they get a little bit older, talking about how, you know, both people uh, need to agree um, to having sex or whatever terminology you you want to use to making love, um, and that if one person says no and the other person forces himself, then, you know, this is called rape. So that your child can have an, an impersonal understanding of whatever the situation is so that when you're ready to introduce it, you're, you're not trying to explain, oh, yes, and this is, this is how, you know, this is part of your, your, uh, your story. Mm-hmm. And then it allows you to become more comfortable with, with the terminology and to, to not, uh, you know, get caught up in, in terms of, you know, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to say the whole thing right now. That's yeah, I, I like that very much. The idea that you're, um, you get the a general under, an, an impersonal understanding first, and then, um, and, and, and that actually might, probably would, in fact, uh, necessitate introducing concepts like this sooner than you might uh, if your child does not have this a part of your history. Um, I would assume. Uh, Angela, let me ask you a question. Now we've talked about. Uh, well, just one second, Beth. So the general, I just want to summarize what you said, if I can, that for children under the age of eight or nine or thereabouts, um, the life book would probably continue to use language along the lines of of your birth mom had grown-up problems. Uh, and then you would be adding uh, information verbally. Uh, did I understand you correctly? Yes, that's correct. Okay, gotcha. Um Angela, as far as um, outside that the the general gist of even outside of a life book, if we are sharing information with our kids that, as parents, we believe should not go, uh, should not be brought up at circle time, or right. at any other time, you know, with uh, right. uh, with friends or whatever. Um, how do parents help their children understand that distinction? That there's nothing to be ashamed of, but it's also Nothing. It's also not other people's business. I, you know, I think it's important. Um, you know, especially as we start talking about adoption language with children early. Um, you know, all along the adoption journey, there's going to be situations where people ask questions or make comments, um, and those become, you know, those become opportunities to talk about. Sometimes people don't understand adoption the way that we do. Um, you know, so you almost kind of have to educate your 
or child on, you know, not everybody's world is like our world, uh, first of all. Uh, but also, as your child is going through, you know, the different developmental, you know, tasks and stages in life, um, adjusting what they want their public story to be and and almost having that kind of scripted, you know. So, you know, what is your child comfortable sharing? So that's kind of – that's that opportunity to work together to talk about, here's what we share to the outside world. You know, here's what I'm comfortable talking about. Here's what I'm not comfortable talking about. Um, here are the things that we keep private in this house, and, you know, and here's what we can tell other people. So it's really important to start start developing that adoption language early so that child can then develop a script as they go throughout their journey and meeting different people who have different levels of understanding, um, you know, of the meaning of adoption and what those various, you know, factors can, can entail. Okay. Excellent. Now I, I, um, I do want to spend some time talking about the issue of rape or the conception through rape, since it does bring up a lot, a lot of outside issues, some of which um, Bessie Vardy started talking about, which is wonderful. We have a question, and she's asking me not to use her name. She says, our child's birth mom has alleged rape, but our agency and us have reasons to question this. I know that sounds bad, but we are trying to decide what to tell our boy. Um, She asked a good question. I think that, and you know, the truth is it does sound bad because we don't want to be questioning a woman about something as sensitive as rape or alleging that, in fact, perhaps this was... uh, um, less of a of a rape if there is such a thing um but yet when we're thinking about the story to tell our child it makes it uh, it makes it complicated because we don't we don't live in a world where we want to believe there are different degrees of rape and yet when you're thinking from your kid's standpoint um is date rape the same thing does it matter if if she was drinking and and does all of this stuff is any of that important um i think that that's um what uh, this uh, woman's question is from reading both the brief part I read as well as the two paragraphs <laughs> she asked me not to read. So anyway, um, Angela, thoughts on handling the issue? First of all, is that does this come up very often? Um, do you uh, have situations, do you see it happening very often, where a woman, uh, a, a, a first mom, says that the conception was by rape, and yet, when pushed a little further, uh, you as an adoption professional are wondering exactly if, if that is the case. Uh, I'll be honest. No, I don't think that I um, – I, I have not often seen, um, an, I guess I'm going to call it an iffy story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think most of the time we've gotten a pretty – a pretty truthful, um, you know, account. Um, Date rape is the issue that this woman was specifically concerned about, where they were at a party, and she is concerned that 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 calling it rape for her son is a little strong, um, because that implies um, something different in her mind. So that's trying to give you a little more information. Uh, I think that we really. Sometimes then we kind of have to get into that, you know, that ling- that legal jargon of saying alleged, reported. Um, we we can't, you know, we can't say for sure. Just like you know, we can't say for sure for a lot of, you know, birth parents what they were thinking, what they were feeling, you know, what was, you know, what was really going on without a conviction. Um, you know, what do you say actually happened? Um, 
So really then it can just come down to, you know, your birth, your birth mother reported that this was the situation. Um, you know, obviously we weren't, you know, we weren't there, but I, I don't think you necessarily want to say, but we're not real sure we believe her. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I've, yeah. The other thing that occurred to me when I was uh, reading this was the thought of, you know, when you're, as your child gets older, what a good opportunity to talk about um, the hazards of drinking too much and and, um, and not knowing what you're doing and um, you know, things introducing the idea. I mean, give them the facts of this is what she said, this is what happened, or this is what she said happened. Um, and um, I, I'm not sure that. It, um, it, it's it's rape either way, so it's it's um, I'm not but 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 couching it in terms of what actually happened um, might take away some of the concerns. Or, or would you agree with that, Angela? Since I was talking with you, um, I guess I'm I guess I'm not sure what I was agreeing to. Um, I, I think it's given the, the, like specific, a, the, the specific details of what the uh, first mom uh, says happened. Yeah, as 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 far as the you know, like if it's not if it's not in black and white or you haven't heard it word of mouth, I, I think it's difficult to share details. Um, so yeah, unless it's uh, you know if it's an open relationship, uh, you know, and this is what birth mom is is reporting, then that's you know then that's her words, and we let her use her words. We really want to be careful that we're not interpreting, um, we're not adding details or necessarily taking details away. Um, you know, we can only we can only provide what we've been what we've been given. Um, and, and so you just, you stick with that. And then in the future, if there's, you know, a need to learn more, you know, then, you know, then you go about that, you know, that search process or that conversation. Um, but yeah, so I think it's got to get back to, you know, your birth mother reported that, you know, it was this situation. Um, and, and we have no idea, uh, you know, what really happened. We weren't, we weren't there. And and then you there's a whole other piece to it of you know what's what's considered a traumatic experience for one person is not for another and that's a whole other show, Dawn, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but um, so stick stick to the information you have. You know, it, it's certainly okay to be more comfortable with saying your birth mother reported that or your birth father reported that. That's yeah, fair. Okay. That's honest. That's fine. And the key is to be honest at this point. Absolutely. Don, Don, can I throw something in here? Absolutely, Beth. Okay. Um, speaking as an adult adoptee, um, you know, so, so often um, growing up, I, I heard from my adopted parents that uh, my birth mother loved me so much that she gave me up for adoption. And that, you know, she made a plan and, and that she really, you know, that this was the driving force here. And that was great when I was little, but the older I got, the more I thought, why on earth uh, <laughs> did she place me? And that doesn't make sense to me. And there must have been a problem. And, again, older and older and just, you know, wondering what happened to my biological mother. And in fact, it this kind of a story, um, you know, drinking, drunk, um, un, unwanted, or, or changed your mind, or, or 
or actual rape um well, not not that the other ones are not actual rape. I know it's even a hard thing to talk about, isn't it? I I, I agree. <laughs> Go ahead, though. Um, the, that that really makes sense. Why the birth mother would look for adoption, mm-hmm. and because it was it was a, a shameful, uh, difficult difficult situation without the relationship, and it was something that she felt as though she was not a part of in terms of the planning. So I, I so. That can that takes away some of the she didn't want me. It was oh my god, I, she couldn't deal with it, and she could have had an abortion, and she didn't have the abortion, and she gave me life. And and I you know uh, what you're saying is that it, it, not putting words in your mouth, it's just paraphrasing to make sure I'm understanding that from an adopted person standpoint, from an adopted parent standpoint, we. We think, oh my gosh, this would be hard information for a child to hear, and, and our instinct is to say, let me protect my child. But if I'm hearing you correctly, from a child standpoint, this could actually be explanatory information that that answers the fundamental question of why would she do this. It gives an explanation that you both. It's it's not a horrible explanation. It's one that you get. It would be one you go, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Did I? Am I understanding you correctly, Beth? Exactly. Yeah, and I think that it's sometimes hard for parents because we we get into the I want to protect my child mode, uh, but I, I loved what Angela said at the beginning in that this is a piece of our kid. This is and they and they have the right to this piece, even if you wish they didn't have it. It doesn't really matter. It is it is, and so your job as a parent is to is to share that. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. We are so glad to have you today on this Creating a Family show. We're talking about how to talk with your child about your uh, the difficult parts of his history, his or her history. Uh, we primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You get the opportunity to submit questions uh, to us for our shows and uh we just share all sorts of information. We'd love to have you sign up for our newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Uh, and uh, you can, if some people would just rather send, send us an email at info at creatingafamily.org and ask and we can add you to that list. All right, uh, Angela, uh, by what age, as, as, I'm, as I understand what everyone is, uh, both uh, you and Beth are saying, the idea is that you lay the groundwork young, and then with each uh, additional conversation, you add uh, more detail. You, you form the framework, and then you continue to add uh, more detail uh, as the child ages. At what age should the child have the full story? I think that's important because I think that many adoptive parents will put it off and put it off and put it off thinking that they will get to it. So I think it's helpful to, to in general, it doesn't have to be a, a line drawn in the sand, but as a general rule, by what age do you want to have shared the good, the bad, and the ugly about your child's story uh, with her? Okay. Um, I think that's a really, it's a good question. It's an important an important question. You notice um, I'm giving you all the hard ones, huh, Angela? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, 
that one for me actually that one doesn't seem nearly as tough. Um oh, well, good. there aren't as many iffy there aren't as many iffy things about it. Uh no, I, first of all, I want to make sure that parents are looking at cognitive developmental age because that can be very different for every child. You know, you may have a 12-year-old whose cognitive um, or developmental, you know, age is more like seven or eight. So I think, first of all, start from there. So if we are looking at cognitive developmental age, I would say between eight and ten. And I know that that may be shocking to some some parents out there going, what? There was Um, an audible gasp in our audience, I'm just going to tell you. Right. (laughs) Right. They were going to say 25 to 30 is what they were going to say. Yeah. They weren't Uh, thinking. Right. Or they're going 18 when they're walking out the door. Um, Hey, by the way. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, No, I'm saying 8 to 10 um, because – Research books, studies, you know, have have shown um, that kids are going through enough when they're adolescents, you know, and trying to figure out who they are. Um, if you start throwing in the pieces at that point, that can be overwhelming. Uh, you know, these kids at age 12, 13, 14, they have, they have enough stuff going on. This is really the time when they're, you know, sorting out their, you know, their social world and, you know, and, and where do I belong in other places of the world. Where mm-hmm. they belong in terms of their identity and their family should be pretty solid at that point if they're mm-hmm. going to have a healthy, you know, transition into adolescence and independence. So that's why we say really a little bit, a little bit younger. But again, you know, you know, keep in mind that that cognitive, that developmental piece, because we know these kids aren't always, you know, on target with that. It's true, and yet I think that um, parents have the tendency when it comes to sharing difficult information to uh, to, to to want to put it off. Uh, and, and therefore, they, it, there's a tendency to say, well, my child is not ready for it, even though cognitively, really, their child is functioning at a nine-year-old level. It's the, yes, but this information requires a greater degree of maturity. So I, I'm glad to hear that you're saying, you know, basically, you need to do this before your child starts into the uh, throes of, of adolescence. Um, what, uh, how would you, well, let me back up a second. We've talked about the issue of if if uh well conception in general is it deals with uh sex but in particular if we're talking about any form of rape it requires parents to think in advance it seems to me because um as Beth talked about you need to educate them on the facts the facts of life uh and the facts of rape before, on an impersonal level before you bring in uh, their history. And I think that, honestly, I think eight is, is young for most of us, and, and I'm a believer in, that, in, in early sex education. Um, and, uh, but uh, the, the, I think it does, uh, Beth, would, would, I, uh, would I be correct in assuming that if we're aiming for a child to have his full information by eight to ten, that we need to start talking about some of the more difficult aspects of sex, uh, forced sex, rape, uh, younger than we might have done otherwise so that we can get that understanding on an impersonal level first. Um, would that? Am I putting words in your mouth or would you agree with that? 
No, no. Um, I I think that you would want to start a little bit younger. Um, as adoptive parents, um, you know, our kids had to, to learn about the birds and the bees way before everybody else. Um, and I'm sure a few of my kids' classmates heard um, much more mm-hmm. than their parents would have liked to, yeah. for yeah. them to have known. Um, yes, probably. <laughs> yes. So, um, so, and, and so in terms of, you know, having sex with more than one person, having sex with, with um, somebody that you um, then go on to not have a relationship with, maybe mm-hmm. didn't know their name, looking at exactly. at, at different possibilities because you see a lot of that in foster care. Um, but not that, I wouldn't go too young um, on the different situations. I, I could still see that being around eight or nine um you know, for for detailing that, because um, you know, you, you look at your child and they're, when they're eight, they look like a baby. My God, they don't look any older than a baby when they're ten. It makes it really hard. <laughs> so, it does. It definitely does because you feel like you're forcing them to grow up in ways that are faster than you would normally feel comfortable with. A- Angela, have you heard that from other people that that fear that you're having to that you're forcing them to grow up and, and understand adult concepts? too young i I have certainly heard that a lot from um, uh, from parents adopting children from foster care who have adopted from foster care and unfortunately, for a lot of these children, the situations that they've come from um, mm-hmm. already started that process so you know and it's not really you can't go back in time um, you can't turn back the clock and you know and and make your eight year old um, you know, be eight uh, if he spent six years in a situation where he was, you know, taking care of his baby brother and, uh, you know, and parentified and all of those things. Um, so I think sometimes we have to look at, you know, they're kind of already coming to you with, uh, you know, with some of this adult concepts, uh, you know, especially if it's a, a foster care situation. Um, but even if it's not a foster care system situation, let's think through the scenario where a a child is placed at birth, was conceived through rape, uh, through incest, or uh, even something not quite as as, as violent as that, but uh, an unidentified birth father where they the, the birth mother did not know who the birth father was. It's that child has not experienced the, the traumas of, of 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 the abuse and neglect that might end up a child land a child in foster care, but still. If we're going to be able to share the full information by eight to ten, then we're going to have to start the conversation uh, of, of, of of rape, of of having sex with uh, outside the concept of a caring relationship, prostitution. Uh, all these things might uh, might have to be shared. So, in that situation, should a parent be more hesitant because the child hasn't hasn't lived the life of and bringing the baggage to her life from foster care? Well, I'd like to think that you know if if your your adopted child came to you, you know at birth or early you know early infancy, you know out of that situation, um, first of all there was trauma, um, you know even if they did come to your birth, and again that's a whole other show, Dawn. Uh, <laughs> you know, a prenatal trauma. Uh, but so there's that piece. But also, 
you know, just because you're talking about these things, just because you're doing this life book and, and you're sharing this story, doesn't mean you're talking about it at the dinner table every night. You know, your, your child is still going to be a child and go, you know, um, you know, play hide and seek with their friends in the neighborhood and mm-hmm. um, and have sleepovers and you know, p- birthday parties or, or whatever. Um, so I think sometimes we have to be careful that you know we don't start. Uh, projecting that them having their story then becomes their entire life, um, mm-hmm. and and that's that's not the point. In fact, the the whole point really of sharing their story is so it it doesn't become this obsessive. I don't know my story, therefore I start filling in the blanks with wrong information. This helps them kind of feel complete, so they can go on and and be who they need to be at the age they are and doing the things that they're doing. Um, so I guess that's the advice that I would give parents: is yes, you are introducing these concepts, you know, earlier than maybe you would, um, you know, with another child. However, you know, this doesn't become your you know your sole focus of, of parenting for the next you know twenty years. And I think it's important to listen back to what uh, what I what Beth what you are saying is that our interpretation of it we're coming at it from a parent standpoint and parents come from the standpoint usually of wanting to do everything possible to protect their kid. But if but uh, from Beth as you were saying, this actually might be an explanation that makes the whole thing make sense to them, and they're not going to put have the the baggage that we bring to it. Um, uh, and uh, am I understanding you right? That, that's exactly right. It, it it just makes sense. It's like, ah, the light goes off. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything that I did when I was a baby. It wasn't anything personal. Um, this was a really big problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's comforting. It's comforting. <laughs> yeah, and that's the part that I that I think is important. It's so hard for us as parents to realize that our children's perception might be quite different from ours. Uh, and we need to drop our per- uh, our perceptions so that we can provide the information and not burden the kids with our worry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, but, but important. <laughs> um, let me ask a question about uh, prenatal exposure, drug and alcohol abuse, that might have uh, or has impacted the child. For example, a child that struggles in school and it's suspected that her learning disabilities might be the results of, of prenatal exposure. Um, Beth, is that important information to share with a child? I think it is. I, I think that, uh, once again, it, it, it can help them understand that, the, so say, for example, the learning disability um, has an origin and that that was the result of their birth parents drinking. And this is, you know, one of, one of the reasons why she's, you know, she's not with her birth mother. Um, it, you can talk about, um, it's also a great lead-in because there's the, the notion of a, a predisposition to drinking and that you're... Uh, in terms of early education, you know, looking at the fact that it's alcohol has a, you have a different relationship with with alcohol, and it's going to be easier um, for you to to become addicted, so to speak, or to have a problem with it. Um, and it's you know it's simply a, a, fa- a fact of life. And I'm not again, I'm not saying that 
it's easy, but it once it gets put out there, then then you can work with it. Yeah, let me just uh, interject that we've got a show coming up, I believe, I don't remember the exact date, in May, where we're going to be talking about this exact thing. Ira Ch- Dr. Ira Chasnoff, and there's another researcher, and her name's not coming to mind right now, who is doing, uh, she, of course, Ira's doing research in general about uh, prenatal exposure and the impact it has on children throughout life or people throughout life. But this other researcher is specifically researching whether or not children exposed to alcohol and drugs uh, prenatally have a predisposition towards addiction. Uh, and it's really fascinating, some of her research. So I uh, let me strongly encourage everyone to sign up for our newsletter. We'll let you know about the exact date on that show. And you can send in any questions you might have ahead of time. And if you're listening to this show after the fact, uh, you can go to the radio page of our site and look at the big list for 2014 and in May, and you will find that show uh, the, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Ira Chesnoff. Um All right, so yes, so we would want to, and that also might be an explanation. Angela, one thought that I have when I think of that is, we want, uh, we are told to try to, uh, uh, we want our children to have a good image of their of their birth parents. How do you how do you reconcile that? Often we are sharing information with our kids that don't necess- that that in some cases does not reflect well upon their birth parents. How do we how do we handle that? And is it important that we still try to have our children? Uh, have their have their keep their birth parents in in a good light. It's an, it's incredibly uh, important for children to have some positive sense, uh, for, you know, of their birth parents. Absolutely. Um, again, because this is part of them and this is part of their identity and this is you know a big part of their story. Um, we, we don't want them internalizing. Well, a big part of my story is is negative or bad or you know, and then, you know, that internalized shame and rejection and abandonment. Um, so we definitely want to try and find whatever positive pieces we can. Uh, sometimes you can get a lot of information, uh, you know, sometimes if it's foster care um, or an open adoption, um, then you have access to some more information where you really can very concretely give some some positive, you know, information to the child. Um but then there are situations where you don't, and in situations where you you really have very little information other than you know this was the unfortunate negative situation your birth mother you know may have been in. Um, what you can do is first of all encourage your child to to wonder, um, encourage the child's thoughts and feelings. Sometimes those will be positive and and. Sometimes they'll be negative. Um, we really want to be careful that we don't write their story for them. Uh, there are children who will say, I think my mother, quote, unquote, gave me up. Um, and as much as we don't like that terminology, we'll hear kids say it anyway. Um, you know, gave me up because I cried too much or I was an ugly baby. Um, and as much as we want to rush in and go, no, that's, you know, that's not right. You were beautiful, and I'm sure that's not it, and she loved you very much. We have to be careful that we don't put our words into their mouth, um, and we really just kind of have to validate whatever feelings they're having. 
um, at that particular time. And then we as parents um, say, you know, you might say, I'd like to imagine that your mother had your smile. You know, I'd like to imagine that, you know, that cute nose came from your your birth father. So sometimes you just have to wonder with your child. You just have to be careful to present it as, I don't know, um, but this is what I would like to think. So you definitely, there's, there's definitely ways to drive that, that positive image home. I'm thinking about what you just said about it's important for us not to write our kids' stories. You know, that's a powerful statement because it, there, there is certainly a temptation as a parent to want to write the story and, you know, to, to write it with a happy outcome and, and you know, the happy ending. Um, and it, how does that play in the whole, when we're in this whole, the topic of sharing the difficult? Um, if we don't share the whole information, are we writing their story for them, Angela? Is that the is that the risk that we take if we try to withhold information? It is. Um, it is basically like you had talked about before. It's 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 writing their story by omission. Um, so, writing their story for them is is providing. It you know as much as I don't like saying it's providing a lie, um, you know it's not providing what is actually theirs, um, and that, and that's something we definitely don't want to do. And, and let me backtrack and and give credit where credit is due. Uh, I believe Karen Purvis is the person who actually said the words, "Don't write their story for them." Um, she's maybe been she's a guest the first, a number maybe of she times is here. It, but. <laughs> we love Karen. Uh, but you know, so yeah, just so it doesn't come back to me like, oh my goodness, she's she's quoting yeah. people and and not giving them credit. Um, mm. But that was something that stuck in my mind because um, it was powerful. You, you can't. You can, but it's not a it's not a good idea to write their story for them, and by omitting information, you're providing fiction. Uh, Beth, from your standpoint, by saying your birth parents loved you, when in fact we don't know, often we do know, and we've spoken with the birth parents, and we do know. But assuming we don't know, which is the case often in international adoption and in some domestic uh, newborn adoptions and in foster care adoption. We don't specifically know. We assume that. How do we, are we writing their story to say your birth mother loved you very much? You know, good question, good question. Um, I I think there's two sides to that. Um, You know, on on the one hand, um, you know, we we don't know. Uh, We don't know that for sure. Um, On the other hand, most parents do love their kids, and you know just in in terms of the percentages and what the most common experience is um you know notwithstanding you know not attaching right away and that sort of thing, but that parents have a positive re- you know reaction to to seeing their their baby born um they may have been worried. They may have been scared. There may have been other feelings, um, but you know the the affection is something that often takes place. So you can, I think you can go either way. Um, so that's you know those are my thoughts. You know, perhaps uh, Angela, going back to language that you used, I would imagine that your as opposed to saying your mother loved you very much, I imagine mm-hmm. that your mother did love you, but. She had a tough childhood, and she didn't learn how to parent, and she 
wasn't she wasn't able to be a good parent to you. Would that be acceptable, do you think? I think what's fair is to is to say how how you feel as a parent. I would, you know, I I want to believe. Um, you know, but I think it's important then to turn to your child and say, "But what do you think?" Um, and let them own oh. those feelings. Um, so so I think yeah, I think you have to be careful there. Not again, not to, you know, project onto your child, you know, what your hopes are. But at that point, you're just you're just modeling appropriate feeling expression. It would make me sad to think that she didn't. I suppose that's a possibility. I feel happier if I think that she did. What do you think? How do you feel? Mm-hmm. We always want to turn it back to them and give them the opportunity to express what you know what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Yeah, that's yeah. And that's when you said allow them to give them permission to wonder. Uh, that's uh, again a, a powerful statement there, uh, because we want to control what they think. <laughs> and so, if we give them permission to wonder, then they might uh, they might wonder things and imagine things that we'd like to rewrite out or edit out of their of their story. The last thing. Can I? Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to quickly say I don't know. Um, if anybody um, has viewed Closure at this point, it was a documentary about a young lady mm-hmm. uh, adopted who goes searching for her birth family. But she speaks about attending a uh, a support group, a birth parent support group. And one of the birth parents does talk about, and, and she expressed feeling, you know, very strong emotions um, as an adoptee, hearing a birth parent say she did not feel connected um you know to the child that she was pregnant with and you know was very much eager to you know to make an adoption plan like she just really needed it to be to be done so it was you know and and even i as you know as a therapist not not an adoptee you know was kind of hit in the face by that because we do we do want to think you know birth parents must feel but we don't know we don't know well, and it's 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 unfair to, in a way, to to lump all birth parents into one, even if we think it's a positive category, and and they all birth parents must feel X. Um, that's that's cutting off the reality, which is that the the universe of uh, men and women who make decision decide to place their child for adoption is a vast universe, and uh, so yeah, that. And I can only imagine from an, an adoptee's standpoint that there could be a feeling of, well, I wonder if my parents, uh, did you really know that she loved me? And, and like I say, oftentimes we do know that because we've spoken with the uh, birth parents and hopefully we're, the child's in a situation where they can speak with the birth parent. Uh, excellent. I'd like for our last question to deal with the concept of we want our children to have all their story because it, these the, the pieces of their story are their history. It is their story. They have the right to this information. But we also want our children to believe that they are more than the history of their story. Um, and I know that there are adoptive parents who worry about that, that by telling the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that they're predisposing their child to believe that their child uh, will live to repeat that story or that that story 
uh, or those events become a part of them. And I'd like to hear both of you talk about uh, how to make how we as parents can help our children make the distinction, understand, but keep it in the place that it belongs, which is this is our birth parents' story, um, and we are not uh, doomed to repeat that story. Uh, Angela, let's start with you. Uh, okay, well, I, I I would say that more often than not, just in the work that I've done with families, I've, I've seen the opposite. Um, I've seen children... Um, you know, in their adolescence, act out what they think their story was. Um, and I think kind of coming back to what Beth was speaking about of having those missing pieces filled in with the accurate information, it explains things. Um, and it, yeah, it just makes you go, oh, that's it. Okay. Now, you know, now I understand. Um, so sometimes kids then who are then filling in the missing pieces, if we're not providing them, may reenact things that didn't happen, um, that may be what they're imagining. And oftentimes what they're imagining is can be worse than what the actual story was. Um, so I've really, I've seen more of the opposite situation happen. Um, and again, it's it's having that having that whole story um, helps to complete that particular piece, which helps them to fulfill the other pieces of of their identity. Which we know there's so much more to somebody's identity than you know than their birth story. Um, so, you know, my advice to parents is you, you know you're more likely to trigger something. You're more likely to trigger some acting out behavior because of the missing pieces than the ones you've provided. Someone who has experienced uh, life as an adopted person. You know, I, I, you cut out in the very beginning. Can you give me that question again? Oh yes, sorry about that. Uh, yes, any thoughts on this, both as someone who whose profession is to help parents explain story, the adopted story, as well as uh, your experience as life as an adopted person. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a poster child for the adolescent who acted out because I didn't have any information. Um, I just created my own script, and I took it from there. And, you know, so much of it was related to to not talking about adoption, to, to not having, you know, a factual basis for it, and that sort of thing. Um, in, in terms of what I'm doing different um, as an adoptive parent, um, you know, I can I can talk or... I can talk with my child about um you know we're we're doing things you're you're learning things differently than than your adoptive parent i'm sorry than than your birth parent um mm-hmm. if i was if I was a social worker working with a child um you know i I would be saying that um you know in in your in your adoption you're 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 learning how to process and manage your feelings. You're learning how to deal with some of the sadness. You're learning about some of the the facts regarding um, drugs, regarding alcohol. We're talking about this. Um, our family is safe. Our family has rules. Um, you know, we we take care of each other. That that wasn't the experience. Um, you know, that your birth mother had. 
this is what's going to make it different for you than it was mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. That's, yes. Thank you so much. I would like to take a moment now uh, to thank you both so much for being on the Creating a Family show to talk about what I think is a really, really an important topic. Uh, to get more information about Bethany, you can go to their website, bethany.org, to get more information about uh, Beth's books, Beth O'Malley's books. You can go to her website, which is adoptionlifebooks.com. I'd like to take a moment now to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family. We have Children's Connections, Inc. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, placing children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, and Serbia. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, specializing in adoption and assisted reproductive technology law in South Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you next week. Right now, there are great deals to escape to Europe in spring and summer on direct flights to Ireland with Aer Lingus. Stay put in cool, contemporary capital Dublin or head off to any of 20 amazing European cities you've always wanted to visit. Classical chic Rome, Paris, the home of romance, or London, the cutting edge of culture. Deals are for a limited time only, so hurry and book today. Smart says escape to Europe this spring and summer. Smart flies Aer Lingus. Book now at aerlingus.com. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.